Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Uh, glorious day here in Texas. Charles, are you home in Florida? Absolutely. Where it is also glorious, albeit a little cold. What does that mean? Like 75, 74? Mm, like 58 today. Well, okay, that is cold for Florida. We've had this weird snap of weather here in Texas where we had, uh, you know, ice and snow and it was eight degrees or something like that. And I think it's supposed to be 80 today. And I actually have to run the air conditioning. So it's that uh, weird weather swings that we get sometimes. Although I think everyone thinks that about their local place, right? Isn't that the, someone has a thing about this that no matter where you live, people say the drivers are bad here, the weather's crazy, and, uh, you know, something else. It's one of the things. That's true. And the one place in the country in which it's indisputably true is Miami. <laughs> is Miami's weather crazy? I thought it just sort of had the same sort of subtropical weather pretty much all the time. I guess so, but it is susceptible to hurricanes and such like. At the very least, the drivers are crazy. That's true, yeah. When I was um, when I was in school in Austin, we used to put the weather in a little box on the front page. And because Austin has such, you know, predictably Mediterranean weather, we always would we'd put a joke in there instead of the actual weather. We'd work the weather into the joke somehow. There was no, no real variation. It's going to be, you know, high of 90-something. Low of eighty something for a lot of the year. And well, this, this is one of the great ironies of life in England because the English are famous for talking all the time about the weather, and the weather is very rarely different than it was the previous day. Maybe there's a month in August where it's sunny, but English <clears> weather is predictable, and yet they're obsessed with it. But no one in Florida talks about the weather. No, even old people don't. Old people talk about the weather sort of stereotypically. Maybe they talk about it more, and maybe I just don't know enough of them. But we have monsoon rains one day, and then the next day, you don't talk about it with your friends. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) Maybe if it happened for two weeks, you'd talk about it. Whereas English people love talking about the weather all the time. So we are talking about people talking about the weather. That's like meta-boring. (laughs) <laughs> we do put our uh, we do put our uh, listeners through it sometimes, um, but what I wanted to talk about, uh, which I wrote about at the beginning of the week, is the case of Sarah Palin versus the New York Times uh, libel case. Um, I'm not a huge Sarah Palin fan, as you probably know. Um, and certainly, my criticisms of the New York Times as well, but it seems to me that in this case. Uh, Palin's got a pretty good argument. Um, sorry, we got dogs barking in the background there. Hope that doesn't uh, distract anyone too much from our conversation about the weather. Uh, so, you know, for uh, for libel in the United States to to lose a case, uh, for something to be considered libelous, there's you know a few different criteria that have to be satisfied. And I think we've actually got really good libel law in the United States. It's one of those areas where we really kind of got things right, kind of like our uh, our building code. It's really very good. Um, some of these things are underappreciated, where I think in the UK they've got crazy libel and defamation laws that make it way too easy to uh, sue and harass people and all that kind of stuff. So I think all laws are pretty good. And in order for something to be libelous, it has to be false to start with. Um, so if something's true, can't be libelous. It has to be defamatory, uh, which means that it um, tends to lower or damage your reputation in some way. And then the third element um, 
which is really only present in the case of public figures, but libel cases don't come up very often, people who aren't public figures, is um, that the defamation has to be published with actual malice or reckless disregard for the truth. That's the, the way that usually breaks down. And uh, in the Palin case, um, the New York Times in an editorial uh, wrote that her political uh, communications had incited the shooting of Gabby Giffords. And they said there was you know, clear uh, link between the two. Um, this is entirely wrong. Um, in fact, there was no link at all between the two, much less a clear one. And um, so false, uh, certainly defamatory to say that someone incited someone to uh, commit a heinous act like that. And so it really comes down to the question of actual malice or reckless disregard for the truth. And I think that um, the Palin people really have a pretty good chance to argue that the Times on its on its opinion pages, which, you know, full disclosure, I've written for, but only once um, and henceforth probably never will be invited to again. Um, engages in some reckless disregard for the truth. Um, you know, the editorial in question wasn't even about Palin. It was about the, um, it was about a different shooting, the one with Steve Scalise. And they just sort of dragged her into it um, out of nowhere. The only reason to put her in there is to damage her reputation, to use um, this event to smear someone who is seen as a political enemy. You know, it's not as though they were writing a story about Palin and made some honest mistake. Um, they went out of their way to try to do something that would demean uh, Sarah Palin and expose her to you know, derogatory opinion. So I think that uh, I don't think the Times will lose the case, um, but I think they deserve to lose the case, don't you? I do. Six years passed between the Gabby Gifford shooting and that editorial. Is that right? Yeah. They knew. And as you say, the reason that they put it in there was to damage her reputation. Right. And, and she had nothing to do with it. And to distract from the fact that a Bernie Sanders fan shot up a bunch of Republican congressmen sure. on purpose. Right. Yeah. Which I don't draw larger themes from. And I don't blame Bernie Sanders. And I don't blame socialists. And I don't blame the Democratic Party. But of course, if it were the other way around would not Naturally. have been done. If, if a Sarah Palin fan had shot up a bunch of Democrats, nearly killed one of them, the New York Times would not have said, this is just like when a Bernie Sanders fan did this, even if it were true, which in the case of Sarah Palin, it was not. And they knew it was not. The only other lie that I can remember being so routinely repeated in the New York Times is that the, the shooter at the Pulse nightclub in 2016 had been motivated by animosity towards gays and potentially mm. by Republicans, which was their inference. Which isn't yeah. true, but it's still repeated. Andrew Sullivan's always writing about how annoying this is. We know it's not true. The shooter <laughs> yeah. at the Pulse nightclub wanted to shoot Disney World up, and he discovered it was yeah. too well protected. So I, I think there's just no chance. And the other thing I don't understand about this case is how the New York Times could prevail when if I understand it correctly, their fact checker said under deposition last week that she missed this. Now, the argument, I suppose, has to be that if she missed it, then they couldn't have been malicious. But the person who wrote it could have been, no? Yeah, and it doesn't have to be malice. It can be reckless. You know, there's you know, two different things you can you can satisfy there. And... um this actually brings up what I think is kind of an interesting question, which is you know, the issue of bias. 
and whether having enough bias and enough of a bias problem can contribute to a situation in which you end up practicing routinely reckless disregard for the truth. And I think there's a case to be made that that's where the times is. When I say bias, I'm not talking about having an opinion. These are the opinion pages. Um, I'm talking about bias in the true sense, um, where you simply either don't check facts, you hold people to different standards, you um, engage in, um, you know, sort of easy and uh, consequence-free uh, derogation of certain parties. And I was thinking about that today because I was reading a Gail Collins uh, column for my sins, and it was about um, student loan forgiveness. And it's a great example of what I'm talking about. And she said that Republicans oppose it because they don't like programs that help people who don't make a lot of money. Now, you and I know, and she probably knows, and if she doesn't know, she should know, that a big part of the argument against these student loan forgiveness proposals is that they actually disproportionately benefit wealthy and high-income people. Uh, you know, people who went to law school, people who went to expensive MBA programs tend to have a lot more student loans than people who are um, at the lower end of the income distribution. And this has been, you know, studied in a number of different academic papers. There's one, uh, you know, by the Wharton School that um, – two professors at the Wharton School that I think that found that uh, the benefits to the top 10 or 20 percent um, outweighed the benefits to all the rest of the population put together. So part of the argument against this has always been that these things disproportionately benefit wealthy students or wealthy, you know, ex-students. And uh, Collins can write that. Now, this is not defamation, and this is just stupidity and, uh, and bias, but Collins can write that because no one checks this stuff out. No one pushes back. They've got this culture there in their opinion pages where you can just essentially say anything you want about someone on the right or about a Republican without any consequences, without any checking, without any real enforcement of intellectual standards. And that's just not true in the rest of the newspaper, I don't think. And it's not true in a lot of other newspapers. Um, the Washington Post, for example, certainly has its bias problems, but not nearly uh, to the extent that I think that the Times does. And they're a lot more careful on their opinion pages than the Times is. Yeah, they are. Or something I pointed out a couple of months ago, maybe longer than that, of, um, oh, do you remember the, some of the Trump trade stuff was going on and there was the big you know, kind of bailout for farmers? And Krugman wrote, well, I haven't heard any Republicans complaining about this. And there were like a dozen prominent Republicans and conservatives who had complained about this very thing. Um, I looked it up. It took me um, 90 seconds to find this stuff on Google and find a whole bunch of examples of it. Um, now, maybe it's true that Paul Krugman hasn't heard this, but <laughs> he's not exactly listening then. Um, anyone who had done just a rudimentary itty-bitty bit of journalism would know that's not the case. But again, at the times, it doesn't matter if it's the case or not. There's no intellectual standards when it comes to this sort of thing over there. You know, I say this as someone who's generally a fan of the newspaper in many ways. I think it's a really good newspaper in a lot of ways. But um, their opinion pages are troubled. And I think they certainly deserve to lose this case. And I think it would be a salubrious example to the rest of the industry if they did. I think that their news side's pretty good, that their opinion pages are embarrassing, and that their unsigned editorials may be the worst thing on the Internet. <laughs> well there's always twitter i but, find um, it irritating when people talk to me about how good the new york times is fact-checking operation is because in my experience that depends entirely upon what you you're saying and what you believe i've written a few times for the new york times 
it was a fine experience. I don't mind being fact-checked down to the last period. But... No, I appreciate it. Well, I do. mistakes. I do, but some of the fact-checking, and I know this is especially true uh, if one writes about abortion, because people at NR who've written for the New York Times about abortion have told me, the fact-checking often veers out of fact-checking and into opinion-checking or opinion-shaping. I joke that when I wrote for the New York Times, they wanted a citation if I said there were 50 states in the union, and they would, after a certain point, start fact-checking my opinions. Now, if you're going to do that, that's okay. Also, I don't work there, so I really have no recourse. But I read the New York Times opinion section quite a lot, even though I think it's terrible, because I want to know what the people who work there are saying. And they run pieces, for example, with headlines such as how white women use themselves as instruments of terror. The subhead (laughs) on this piece from last year was... There are too many noose necks, charred bodies, and drowned souls for them to deny knowing precisely what they are doing. That's a statement of fact. Uh, The continued public assault on black people, particularly black men, by the white public and by the police predates the pandemic and will outlast it. This racial street theater against black people is an endemic primal feature of the republic. I don't mind it if Charles Blow wants to write that. But don't pretend that if somebody wrote an op-ed that they had solicited and said that the ongoing presence of Roe versus Wade was a genocide against particularly African-Americans, that it would make it into the newspaper. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. And one piece of rhetoric is allowed, another piece of rhetoric is not. And I think that's why they got in trouble with Sarah Palin, because it doesn't matter what you say about her. I think that's the prevailing view in the newsroom. I share a position at National Review with you as Chief Sarah Palin detractor. I've written lots of critical stuff about Sarah Palin. I think Sarah Palin was a disaster. I also do not think... Okay, my my, my opinion ever may not be quite as low as yours, but um, go ahead. Okay, well, I am the chief then. You can be the deputy. (laughs) But, But I do not think that that gives me license to say things about Sarah Palin that are not true. Right. And I suspect that that was the assumption at the Times. And as such, I am with you. I I think that, you know, this is, ironically enough, a good example of where the thresholds set in New York Times v. Sullivan are met. Yeah. You know, I have the um, unusual experience, at least among our uh, our group, of having been written about a great deal in the New York Times. True. um, During the uh, Atlantic brouhaha. And I forget how many columns published about me um it was a few and uh do you know how many times i was called about a fact check or to you know clarify my opinion or any of that kind of stuff it's gonna be zero isn't it it's gonna be zero (laughs) nobody ever bothered to uh even pick up the phone and um and check any of that stuff out so it's not what i would call the tightest ship in the fact-checking business. I should just say, I feel morally obligated to say, in fairness, that in, I think, 2015, the New York Times did a profile of me uh, that was conducted by Mark Leibovich, and he was great. They were fair. It was edited fairly. 
Uh, it was fact-checked properly. They did reach out, and um, I'm grateful for that. So I, I don't want to give off the impression that um, you know everything they do is terrible. I, I just do think that there is a prevailing culture there, and I think it is much more true now than it was in 2015 yeah. that holds that there are some people that are so bad that you could just say whatever you want about them, and that's not fair. Yeah. You know, speaking of that... Um... This is um, something that illustrates the kind of dynamic I'm talking about. Um, during that whole Atlantic business, um, Ross Douthat over the Times, uh, and who also works for National Review, wrote a column uh, partly about me called Among the Abortion Extremists. And the person he held up as being sort of the opposite of me on the other side was Ruth Marcus of the Washington Post. And because she had written a column about how she had, she would have aborted her children if she had learned that they had Down syndrome. And, uh, which, okay, so she's not the only person in the world with that opinion. But what's funny is, when I wrote about abortion for the Washington Post, Ruth Marcus was the person who I had to report to, who was my editor over there. And the opposite situation, you know, if you can imagine Ruth Marcus writing for some other publication and having to satisfy the editorial eye of some hardcore pro-lifer, not a thing that happens. So what was that like? Oh, it's fine. She was fine to work with. The Post is fine to work with. I've written for them a number of times. And uh, it's not a problem, but it's just, it's a dynamic that really only works in that direction. And particularly on that topic. Yeah, particularly on that topic. That's, yeah, I mean, beat on the Times a little bit more. They do really, really good work on some things. Like their local news coverage is really very good. Um, some of their investigative stuff is just terrific. The stuff they did on, you know, Rikers Island and uh, New York uh, jailing problems which was just terrific stuff. Um, they're bad on the opinion pages. And then on the news pages, there's just a couple of subjects that tend to make them go a little crazy. Unfortunately, one of those is national political campaigns. So that is pretty much useless on that. Uh, you just can't get your politics news from the New York Times. Uh, guns and religion are really yeah. the, the other two, I think. And all of that comes from the same cultural orientation, um, which is partly ignorance, uh, partly arrogance, and uh, partly um, condescension. Their gun coverage in the news section has a has a slant and makes elementary mistakes. You know, they, they talk about machine guns sometimes, and they talk about the gun show loophole but it's not terrible the gun coverage on the opinion pages is just risible and i know you've written before especially gail collins yeah. just awful yeah. yeah speaking of which um i mentioned this maybe on the corner a while back i can't remember it's been the last week or so um someone was writing about this shooting in which um guy had used i guess it was a glock with a 30 round Oh, yeah. um, magazine? No, it was a it was a fifty round drum magazine. One of those really unusual things. And the way it was written, this was an Associated Press story, was that the magazine holds an additional forty rounds beyond the ten that are already in the gun. <laughs> really, I've never seen a gun like that. Where are they hiding the extra rounds if not in the magazine? Um, and funnily enough, someone who just doesn't know how a gun works. Yeah, and so funnily enough, this is a good example of why the way in which progressives tend to use diversity is not especially helpful. Right. Because what you end up with is 100 people in a newsroom who look different, uh, who are uh, 
from different places. Uh, some of them are men, some of them are women, some of them are something in between, some of them are straight, some of them are gay, and they all don't know how guns work. <laughs> so what you actually want uh, is some of that, fine, and you'll get that naturally because America is fairly meritocratic. Uh, but also, yeah. you want I've somebody talked about that in the context of my uh, my neighborhood from time to time, where it's very diverse. You know, we've got affluent college educated white people, we've got yeah, affluent college educated black people, we've got affluent college educated Asians and Hispanics, and uh, very diverse. And everyone drives an Audi except me. <laughs> yeah. So you want the guy in the corner who says, "Actually, guns don't, or at least these guns don't just have rounds in them." But they don't exist. And it's not that weird. I know that it might feel it in the New York Times building, which is the problem. But in England, you could be forgiven. If you work at the London Times and you don't know how a handgun works, okay, no one has one. In America? I mean, (laughs) 60% of people here must have fired a handgun. More. Oh, I imagine it's more, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, you just made me think of, you know, sometimes you meet someone who was born and raised in Manhattan, doesn't know how to drive, but, um, you know, not in Amarillo. No. Just, just different, uh, different kind of lives. So this actually uh, is, a, is a bit of a segue into a broader topic that I thought we would discuss, which is there are really two aspects to free speech that matter. And um, each one matters in its own way. And neither one on its own, I think, is sufficient to really provide the kind of free speech culture you want. One of those things is laws. Uh, In the United States, we happen to be blessed with the First Amendment, which keeps a lot of um, official government censorship shenanigans at bay, although maybe not all of them, which is not the case in in Europe or in in parts of Asia and and, uh, other parts of the world. And then there's a culture of free speech as well. And I think that's equally important because you can have the best rules in the world and the best laws on the book. But if you have a culture that doesn't really reflect those and the values that are um, impressed into them, then uh, into those rules, I mean, then having the rules doesn't really do you a lot of good. Yeah, there seems to be something of a divide growing between people who are what I call full service defenders of free speech and then people whose focus is more narrow. Now, it's important to distinguish between the legal question and the cultural question. Of course. The legal question is and should be approached differently. For example, the U.S. government has absolutely no right to censor my work at National Review. Rich Lowry does. But should he? And as you say, I think we need both component parts if we're going to have a small L liberal society. And I think that just as National Review puts pressure on the government and the courts and politicians to maintain a legal framework within which people can speak freely, I think we should be, in our private capacity, putting a great deal of pressure on the culture to maintain an elementary liberalism so that there's a point to having laws that protect free speech. You you do not want a country in which you have all sorts of parchment rights, but that you cannot use them. So again, I know that free people can decide not to be tolerant. Spotify can decide not to be tolerant. The New York Times can decide not to be tolerant. Random House can decide not to be tolerant. But they should choose otherwise. And I think that we have just as much of a fight, probably more of a fight on our hands in preserving that culture 
than we do preserving the law. They are, of course, related. They reinforce one another. Good laws tend to lead to cultural tolerance, and cultural tolerance tend to lead to good laws. But the legal question cannot exist in a vacuum and was not designed to exist in a vacuum. If you go back to the introduction of the Bill of Rights by James Madison, he says this. He didn't want a Bill of Rights because he thought it was unnecessary. But having been prevailed upon to add one, he says, you know, one of the good things about this is it will write down for the American people a, a set of ideals that they can return to. It will become inculcated in the culture in a way that wouldn't happen in the same way absent a Bill of Rights. Now, why did he want that? Did he want that because he wanted the law to be self-executing? Or did he want that because he thought that free speech was in and of itself a good thing? I think it was the latter. And I am pleased with the way National Review covers this, unlike some other outlets and some other people, where we seem to care very deeply about both. We want a rigorous First Amendment that really, as you said, only allows governments to intervene in cases of libel and imminent uh, incitement uh, of illegal action, um, but also that calls upon Americans to reflexively uh, indulge and be patient with their fellow citizens. Yeah. We should also probably acknowledge that there's a huge element of BS in this too, that the people who say, well, what's happening with Joe Rogan isn't really censorship because it's not the government doing it, want the government to do that also. Um, they have, you know, campaigned to have um, the federal government try to clamp down on Fox News. Yeah. Uh, they want to have official rules against so-called disinformation or not even so-called disinformation, actual disinformation. Um, they certainly, for the most part, not in every single individual case, but as a as a rule, the tendency is to want to have greater government involvement in this stuff as well by the people who insist upon uh, that distinction as though it were somehow um, exculpatory. Yeah, and also their underlying implication, which is that one is government censorship and the other is free association, isn't quite right. Free association is not listening to Joe Rogan. Free association is not trying to get him fired. It is legal for you to try to get him fired, and it's legal for Spotify to fire him. But there is a big difference between saying, I don't like this comedian, I won't go and see him, even trying to convince other people not to go and see him, and saying this comedian should never work again, this comedian should be fired by Netflix, this theatre should not host this comedian. And if you look at what people are saying about Joe Rogan, they're not just saying, I'm offended by this guy. They're saying the misinformation that he is spewing out there is killing people. Well, if you believe that, then you do want to have him removed. You want to have him silenced. You don't just want him removed from Spotify. You want him removed, period, because people will move on if he leaves Spotify and listen to him elsewhere. So as you say, there's, there's a real sleight of hand here. Yeah. Uh, I, I think maybe an analogous case, um, and for all you blankety-blank idiots uh, out there, you can compare things without equating them. Uh, from the earliest days of the country, we've had a First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of religion. But also for a long time in American history, you could legally be Jewish. But if you were, well, you couldn't live in this neighborhood. You couldn't belong to this club. You couldn't go to that school. Um, 
no one in this case, I think, would say, well, that was an acceptable social situation because it wasn't the government enforcing anti-Semitism. It was culture doing that on its own. Um, in a similar way, and again, bias along political lines, I don't think is the same thing as anti-Semitism or racism or any of the rest of that stuff. Same points of comparison here. Um, do we really want to live in a society in which that is the case? And how does that really um, affect what kind of practical free speech environment we have as opposed to, as you call it, parchment, right? By the way, I like that expression. I never heard it before. Is that yours? or No, it's James Madison's. Called it a parchment, right? Well, huh, he called it a parchment barrier. Parchment barrier. Gotcha. But he was, he was at first being sardonic, and then he appropriated his own sardonic term to sell it back to the people who disagreed with him. <laughs> it's classic politics. <laughs> Essentially, what James Madison said was, look, we don't need to have a Bill of Rights because the enumerated powers doctrine in the Constitution is there. And besides, if the government turns tyrannical, what good will parchment barriers be? And then the anti-federalists said, we think we would really like some parchment barriers or we're not signing onto your constitution. And then James Madison said, aha, parchment barriers, that's what we need. Yeah. What else is there to say on this subject? Well, have you actually ever listened to Joe Rogan? Because I haven't. I, I, I think I heard maybe three minutes of a Joe Rogan podcast when I was in my brother-in-law's car in San Francisco two and a half years ago. And that's it. I've never, I've never watched a clip. I've never listened to it. I, my, my, my objection to the people trying to cancel him is not the product of my being some Joe Rogan super fan. I actually don't know what the show's mm. like. So yes, I've listened to his podcast at least a couple of episodes. I've seen, I guess, two of his stand-up specials, at least. Maybe he doesn't have more than that. So um, I wouldn't call myself a huge Joe Rogan fan. Um, I think he's gifted. He is really good at, uh, at what he does. And there's a reason that he's become, um, as popular and, uh, influential as he is, um, superficial, you know, typical sort of celebrity level of, uh, intellectual engagement with a lot of stuff, but very funny and sometimes uh, a good interviewer, I think. So, um, he's definitely got his merits, although not something I would listen to you on a regular basis. Because I wonder whether he, from what I know about him, again, having not listened to his podcast, is going to become more powerful the more oh, course, people yeah. try to get rid of him. Not just because people will flock to it in uh, in response, but the obvious end game, or I should say the obvious end result of our censorious culture is the creation of even more people who spend all of their time from birth checking boxes and avoiding controversy. We already have these yeah. people, people who decide they want to be president when they're six, people who decide they want mm -hmm. to be a Supreme Court justice when they're 10. But now we're reaching the point at which if you ever want to have a job in any circumstance, be it a journalist or a manager at American Airlines, you probably don't want to leave a paper trail or ever say anything that is not approved of by 80-90% of people. And I think that the reaction which to changes, that... Which by the way. Of course it does. And I think the reaction to that, which is going to get worse, is going to be to create more people who seem fairly normal to me, like Joe Rogan, who seem 
attractive because whatever they are, they're not that. Yeah. Well, the thing about these campaigns uh, against people like Rogan is they're not really about people like Rogan. Uh, they're about everyone else. They're about obscure people, people who aren't uh, celebrities, people who don't have these huge platforms. It's a way of terrorizing those people into compliance by using these other people as an example. Because as you say, none of this stuff is actually going to keep Joe Rogan from being able to communicate what he wants to communicate. Um, if anything, I've, you know, got a larger and wider readership after the Atlantic brouhaha than I did before it. And this is true in a lot of, you know, other similar cases. It's not about changing behavior um, for people like us or keeping ideas or words from getting out there. Um, it's scarlet letter thing. It's setting an example for other people and people who don't have the kind of power that people with media platforms uh, have. And you and I have talked about this a little bit. There was the, the young lady, I want to say she was 19 or maybe younger than, older than that. She was a medical student and wanted to be a medical student in New York. And the Times was was the Times was doing a story about smoking among young people. Oh, yeah. And she didn't want didn't want her name used because she was afraid that this would keep her from getting a job in the future. Um, if people knew that she'd smoked cigarettes when she was a college student. That's crazy town. That's just nuts. Yeah, and it's going to create dull people. Already has. Also, think about the great uh, figures. That armies would... of them. <laughs> vast, vast, vast numbers of very, very dull people who we have to hear from more than we need to. But go ahead, please. No, think about all of the great figures that we would have lost if one's previous words or actions or political positions were taken as an unerasable stain. John Adams. John Adams was against the American Revolution before he was for it. It's totally reasonable. He thought that it was an illegal insurrection, which it was. And eventually he came to the view that it was a justified illegal insurrection. Think yeah. about Winston Churchill, who had all sorts of positions, changed parties twice, was wrong on big questions, the abdication crisis, India. Yeah. We, we are going to create well, think a, about a, a culture think about a, which... You know, a a left-wing hero like John Lennon. I know you're a, you're a Beatleologist. And 1972, the year I was born, John Lennon had a big song, the name of which we cannot say on this podcast. Oh, that's true. And uh, if if he had attempted to record something like that today, he would be cast into the outer dark, even though it is in its way a kind of feminist anthem. Yeah, and and to stick with John Lennon, John Lennon left his wife and had a five-year affair with her friend who became at first his secretary and then his lover. And then he went back to his wife. Now, I'm not saying that's morally correct. It's not. But he went back and just before he died, he had made this domestic, well, for the first time in his life, really, he'd made this this domestic shift uh, that that made him happy. And thankfully, that's how he's remembered for it. Um, but if he had died in 1977, he wouldn't be. And I, I, just, I suppose the word that we're barreling towards here is redemption. That's what's lacking from all of this. Is, is any grace whatsoever? Is any understanding that people make mistakes or that they evolve or that they change their minds for good reasons or that they... Grow up. I mean, 
you know, it's something I'm going to be watching very closely with my kids is what they put out there on social media when they're at the stupid age, which all men are, by the way. Not, not sure it ever goes away. <laughs> I'm still waiting for it. Dude. No, but but I mean, look at look at the age at which professional athletes get in trouble when ten years after they wrote something, they're signed to a big contract. Yeah, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. Yeah. I was an absolute moron I, I don't mean i was stupid or that i was totally ignorant but i mean i just had no sense of danger i had no long-term plan i had no inhibitions and you know if you have a culture that says if you've ever said something stupid and then you apply it to men <laughs> well they're all going to be thrown out mm, yeah other aspects of this we need to get to any other things we want to talk about today? You want to talk about inflation? Yes, I want to hear you talk about inflation. Uh, someone pointed out on Twitter just now, this is from Zero Hedge. I'm not sure that's a super reliable source, but checkable claim of fact. The last time inflation was the level it is now, it was uh, the federal funds rate was 11.5%. So why does that matter? One of the things I keep on going on and on about is that we have had really, really, really very, very low interest rates for a long time, uh, low by historical standards. And uh, the average uh, for the last 40, 50, 60 years is a lot higher than what it is right now. And certainly the highs that it has gotten to at various times um, or radically higher than where it is right now. The reason that matters is because we already spend a significant chunk of our tax revenue every year paying interest on the debt. So if interest rates go up, that makes debt service more expensive as it turns over. You know, you have to refinance stuff as it comes up, and you'll have to refinance it at higher rates. And so if interest rates were to go back to something like just close to their historical average, you're talking about an you know an extra trillion or trillion two in spending every year just to take care of interest on the debt. Uh, maybe more than that. I've been running the numbers in a little while. So it's something that can blow a sort of Pentagon-sized hole in the budget, a Social Security-sized hole in the budget. Um, so it's from a fiscal sense and an economic sense a very dangerous situation to be in. Um, you're exposed to a lot of. Uh, risk on interest rates. And of course, high interest rates are usually what you use to fight inflation. Uh, speaking of which, I was really irritated um, yesterday, and I wrote a little something about this, for these two Democratic senators proposing that we suspend the gas tax um, in response to inflation uh, because gasoline prices are getting higher. But of course, a tax cut is exactly the opposite of what you would want to do if you were trying to tamp down inflation. You'd want to raise taxes, take money out of consumers' pockets so there's less to spend and put some downward deflationary pressure on the economy. So we've got a government that's very irresponsible, um, that's either run by people who either don't understand or don't care um, how this stuff actually works because they're very, very short-term thinkers. And we put ourselves increasingly in an unnecessarily risky position. Now, we did this thinking that inflation was just a dragon that had been slain. You know, we had a really ugly bout of it from the 60s through the early 80s. Um, 
the you know sort of last years of the Carter administration and the early years of the Reagan administration, they took some uh, necessary steps and got inflation back under control, which took a very painful uh, recession. And it also took interest rates going up to something like 19 percent, something just under 20 percent. Um, might have even been a tad over 20 percent at one point. I can't remember. But um, so that's the situation we're in, which is economically really quite dangerous. Um, we have a weird attitude toward risk in the United States, um, and we don't really take a serious view of accounting for the economic risks we inflect on ourselves. When I moved to America, I didn't just have zero dollars. I had minus 2,500 pounds. And the reason I had minus 2,500 pounds was because when I went to university, I got a bank account as an adult. And they had a policy that I could overdraw it by 2,500 pounds without paying a single penny. And they never... Did. Right. So they never took that away from me till I closed the account when I became a permanent resident here. And so what I did was leave my bank account essentially at minus 2,500. I was careful not to go over it, but that became my new zero. And of course, yeah. any time that I had a problem or an unexpected expense, I wished that I hadn't done that. But because I was 23, 24, whatever, I kept doing it. And that's how I see the federal government <laughs> with, with what you just described. They borrow all yeah. this money. That's the new zero to them. And suddenly, we're looking at inflation, which means we might be looking at high interest rates. And, ah, because what we actually should have done is put ourselves in a position in which that was the crisis. And I'm, I'm hugely grateful to Joe Manchin for holding the line on this, not because I think he's particularly responsible fiscally, nor is the Republican Party, but because... We are in a situation in which we don't just have the problem that you have described. We have the problem that you have described, plus a governing Democratic Party that, other than about two people, wants to make it worse. Yeah. But they want to borrow more money. Yep. They want to add to that debt that will have to be repaid at presumably a higher interest rate. And so now we're fighting with ourselves. We can't fight inflation without causing massive increases in the debt that we have to pay off it's just it, we, in other words we spend like a 22 year old man <laughs> like a 22 year old idiot yes right. um, as, as we, we both were I will age. say just just for the record that since I moved to the United States I've been basically the most responsible <laughs> financial uh, <laughs> model uh, paragon of virtue, because when I got here, I realized I had no credit rating, and therefore I was credit unworthy. And ever since that point, I've been absolutely paranoid about ever being in a position ever again where I can't pay a bill. Um, but yeah, I mean, while I was being offered by my bank to just borrow money at 0% interest, and I didn't have any. Hmm. Now, imagine your bank would have let you borrow 100,000 pounds. Yeah, two hundred thousand or five hundred thousand. I, mean, I, I assume there would have been a limit, but yeah, I mean, that, exactly. 
It's just not a great idea to tell 18-year-old boys, hey, have free money. Or Congress. Yeah, sometimes when I'm uh, driving, I listen to the radio if I get tired of my own own stuff. And uh, I just say this because that's when I usually listen to talk radio is when I'm I'm driving either on a long road trip or I'm stuck in traffic. And one of the things that I sometimes like listening to, or at least used to, I haven't listened in a while – is the uh, Dave Ramsey show. Do you know this guy? I do. So he's, for those of you who don't know, he's um, kind of, you know, conservative, traditional, Christian, evangelical type, but his thing is personal money management and getting out of debt and uh, and that sort of thing. And listening to people call into his show is just like, I- I'm not the sort of person who normally slows down to look at a car wreck, but um, man, just, Terrible stories, just terrible stories of people who make, you know, I make $75,000 a year and I've got $600,000 in credit card debt and uh, those sorts of things. It's just uh, they're crazy, crazy stories. I know I've mentioned this before, but um, you know, during the whole subprime meltdown of, man, it's hard to believe that's been uh, so long ago, but um, it seems like it was the day before yesterday. The Wall Street Journal did a really nice series on um, – People who had, you know, defaulted on their mortgages or who were in trouble with these, um, you know, upside down houses. And so many of these cases where, you know, Bob and Sue are a married couple and they're school teachers and their total household income is $150,000 a year. And they live in California and they've got a $975,000 mortgage. (laughs) And just, you know, how do people do this? But people do it. And I've done it too. I was an you know, idiot when I was was younger, and I'm not really the most financially responsible person in the world now. But uh, damn, yeah. So I, I I'm happy to say I've never got anywhere near that. I mean, that was really my only sin was just taking the minus twenty five hundred as as the baseline. Um, I think I think the the knowledge that my father would have <laughs> given me a lecture <laughs> beyond that <laughs> would have been enough. So but, parenting works, you're saying? Yeah, I really think it is. In fact, um, not to throw my dad under the bus. In fact, I'm, I'm glad he did this. But when I left university, I had that sort of weird period where I didn't have a job, but I also wasn't at university anymore. And I was two pounds short uh, for my credit card bill, two pounds. And I went to my dad and said, I'm two pounds short. Can I borrow two pounds? for you know three days so that i can pay off my my credit card without incurring any interest and um he said no (laughs) why (laughs) no he did he did and um that was great that he did that it was truly great that he did that um i met your father before he didn't seem like an especially stern guy but um i'm glad to hear it well he grew up poor and i think he thought quite fairly look at this life that i gave you no way no way. You're 22. Yeah, I'm kidding. All right. So, um, you know, I was saying, by the way, I'm not a, not a huge uh, Joe Rogan fan. Um, that, that is true, by the way, until the next time I have a book coming out, at which point I'm a huge Joe Rogan fan. And uh, <laughs> definitely like to. Well, I need to find uh, out if I'm that. a Joe Rogan fan by actually listening to him. His, uh, his comedy specials are really good. Um, those are really funny. His uh, podcast is... Is also good as podcasts go, as interview podcasts go. There are things about it that you'll find irritating that'll cause you to roll your eyes and and that sort of thing. But it's often very good. I mean, I haven't listened to every episode, so I'm not a huge expert on it. 
But um, the ones I have listened to have been a mixed bag, but not terrible by any stretch. All right. Well, I shall find out. Hopefully, it won't be canceled before I do. Hopefully not. This podcast, on the other hand, is not a mixed bag. It's a, it's a very unmixed bag. <laughs> Just it's not everyone's bag. <laughs> All right. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.